Our text for consideration tonight is beginning on page 848 of your Pew Bible. Mark chapter 11, verse 27 is where we're going to start. This is quite a bit before the reading you just heard a moment ago. You heard the two debating or, or competing questions that are trying to trip Jesus up in a series of questions, really three of them. And, and the last one will be coming this Sunday. And then after Jesus answers all the questions in such a manner that his enemies cannot respond, uh, there'll be a fourth question that he will ask leading into his passion prediction again, uh, foretelling his death one more time uh, at the start of chapter 13. But again, for today, then we're in the first part of one of these larger sandwiches. And in the midst of this, there's there's something else that's going on that I think is worth trying to, to touch on for just a moment this morning. And that's the question about, or the issue of what is a story. Because Jesus is going to tell a story. Uh, The Sadducees are going to tell a story. Mark is telling a story. I am telling a story. You live in a world where everyone's telling their own kind of story somehow. And there's a lot of competition for what is the story that gets to be the loudest or the strongest. I don't know how much you like to study uh, you know, far end futuristic warfare tactics and theory, but I'm enough of a nerd that I've stumbled into it a little bit. And uh, there's something called fifth generation warfare or psychological warfare is what they call it. I, it's not a new idea. It, it's that the new tools of electronic information make this far more effective than bullets for corralling people. Uh, if you can convince your enemy that he's your friend or your slave by just talking to him long enough, uh, well, then that sure beats having to have a bloody battle of some kind. So fifth generation warfare, psychological warfare, propaganda is what we call this, right? Uh, Where news and information becomes so much a single story that it crushes all other stories out of existence and in fact stops being believed at a certain point. Uh, The Emperor's New Clothes is a story about propaganda as stories, right? So we live in a world where this is the case. We're not going to change this. But what maybe Christians in America need to do very badly right now is decide that our story matters more. The story of Jesus Christ matters more. And that means then the stories that he told also matter a great deal to us. They aren't merely lessons to be learned like you might do in a math classroom. These are the words of life, which inspire a man to either live forever or to die and rot in his own self-hate. And so giving care to the fact that our God became a man and then spent a lot of time telling stories is somewhat worth our time. What is the purpose and strength and power of a story? What is a story? And I think, now someone can correct me, I'm sure others know better, but I think there are three main things about any story. Um, and the first one uh, is the question, when? Now, if you took any journalism classes, you kind of know some of this, but, but not in these three categories I'm going to talk about. The question, when, though, What this tells you initially is, is it historically true or not, right? I conquered Mars. Oh, pastor, when did you do that? In my dreams last night, right? Like, it's not a real story. 
So the question of when tells you whether or not it's a it's a, a real story. But that word real is a little rough because Jesus' story is a real story too, his parable of the tenants. It's about real things and real people, just in a different way than history, right? So when is the question of history? And then you have these other questions, who, what, how, and where? And they all squish together into one category called, what's the story about? Or, or the plot, right? The characters, what happened? So when, that is, is it history or not? What happened? That is, what's the story, right? And then the third thing is the question that you got to know I've, I've left out so far. It seems to be the most important many times. It's the question, why? So while you have when it happened in history or not, and you have what happened, the story itself, you have why it happened, which is the meaning of the story. And now we're dealing with Jesus on a level where not only did the story get told by him for a reason in Mark to the Sadducees, but the story itself and has a higher meaning that transcends and goes beyond that even to us today. And that can all sound a little heady and highfalutin, but what I want you to know then, what I want you to get out of this, is that what stories mean most is not when, what, where, how, it's the why question, and that why ultimately is because Jesus is saving you. And so searching for that, hunting for that in the story itself, that's going to be a very fulfilling thing for you to do. It's not going to be fulfilling to go to the parables of Jesus and ask yourself the question, how can I be saved? If you do that, you're going to probably come away feeling like you're condemned because a lot of the time he's condemning the people he's talking to. <laughs> that's what he's doing. That's what he's going to do tonight. He's going to condemn Jerusalem once and for all. He's just done with it. Uh, the tree is rotten. They're going to tear it down. Uh, so go into the story asking instead the question of where is Christ saving me in this story? And we're going to do that then initially with this parable of the tenants. And then we'll see if we learn from that as we go forward into the two that we heard read a moment ago. Uh, one more thing, though, about stories here then. Finally, if you didn't kind of pick this up from everything else I said, stories before they're anything else are riddles. They're riddles. They mean what they say usually, but they also mean more than what they say. And the author doesn't really write it just to mean what he says. He's going for this deeper idea, that riddle. And once you unpack the riddle, that's where, where the gold is. So approach this as like it's a puzzle or a quest, right? Uh, it's something that is, it takes a little strategy, a little thought. You got to be a disciple. That's the word for students, right? You got to pay heed. So that's where then let's start with our text, 848. Top of that page, verse 27, uh, kind of the setup. Remember that Jesus previously to this has been not only kicking money changers out of the temple, but talking about how Jerusalem is not a healthy place, that the fig tree uh, is rotten at the roots. That fig tree is coming back Sunday. In the meantime, they came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Notice, not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, not the Herodians. They're coming. They're in line, right? And those Pharisees and Herodians, they're the real enemies that have been plotting destruction since like chapter 3, right? But they're kind of pushing other people to the front first. And here are these chief priests, scribes, and whatnot coming to him in Jerusalem to challenge him, to test him. I ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? 
So they come to Jesus, this guy who's been healing people left and right, who has massive crowds following him because they believe he is the Messiah. He clearly has the run of the complex because otherwise they would arrest him. They're afraid of the crowds and they can't arrest him. He's the one that's in charge. And they ask you, how did you get to be in charge? Who told you to do this? Do you remember the story I told from Sunday? If you weren't here, that's okay. I'll try to keep it brief. Alexander the Great, greatest general there ever was, greatest conqueror there ever was, is approaching Jerusalem to conquer it in the time when he is defeating Babylon and Persia, all these other great, great nations and powers. And the high priest of Jerusalem, whose name is Jabus, goes to the temple and seeks the guidance of, of God. And I don't know whether it was through the Urim and the Thummim or the casting of lots or if a prophet spoke. I don't know which one it was, but what he was told was get dressed like priests, go out and meet the guy and welcome him as your conqueror. Bang symbols and make a big show of the entire thing. Act like you, in fact, have the true God on your side. Go out and meet him in my name. And he goes out and he meets Alexander the Great in his name, the high priest Jabus. Alexander the Great bows before him and then follows him to the temple to make sacrifices and leaves having conquered the city peaceably and leaving the priesthood still in charge. But now here's the contrast. The priesthood 300 years prior welcomes a pagan king and says, you can have the authority, no problem. And now here's the real king and what do they do? He gets all the way into the center of the city. He's clearly conquered the place without even lifting a sword. And they won't have any of it. They challenge him directly. And Jesus won't have any of it either from them. Verse 29, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. I think I saw something in the commentary I was reading that says this would have been kind of classic scholastic debate skill. So like if, if you're in a debate with others in your profession, right? You're, you're talking about, I don't know, dentistry or, or astrology or uh, astrology, astronomy, um, or whatever type of profession you're into and you're with others, but you disagree with them about kind of how to practice it. You're trying to hash it out. And somebody says, you know, uh, well, what about this? I want to see if you know what you're doing and, and you don't know, but you were to say, well, I don't know, but I know about this. And that other person doesn't know that you've got a balance in the information there. So Jesus is, is really within his rights to say, okay, I'll answer your question, but hold on here. You know, I'm, I got the floor. <laughs> you know, so, so what gives you the right to take it from me? Let me ask you a question first. See if you can you know, stand on this floor with me. And, and they find out that, that they can't. His question, verse 30, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. I love the directness. Yeah. Answer me. <laughs> you know, I'm the one with the floor, he says. Bringing John the Baptist in brings death into the equation, right? Uh, we have already seen that the kingdom of God is taken by violence, by cowards, and other men who would push their way into it. And John's death is part of that. John's death will probably be part of the story he tells here in a moment as well. Verse 31, though, they, they discuss the question. It's quite the end around that Jesus does here. They say to one another, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And, and kind of the issue here is, right, they're lying. It's not that they, they don't know. They know what they think. They don't think the baptism of John's from heaven. So, so they know, but they're going to lie. Why? What's at work behind their hearts here? And the answer is fear, cowardice. 
even a kind of laziness. I've mentioned this at sale character from the book of the Proverbs before. They're very much like that. Like rather than deal with what they should deal with to have integrity, to be honest and face their world with who they are, instead, uh, they're going to say, I, I don't know. And that gives Jesus the right to say, well, then I don't have to talk to you. And neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And chapter 12, verse 1, he began to speak to them in parables. He tells this story. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. So the setup there is pretty clear. I'm not going to rehash. There's a beautiful vineyard. We just did this. Do you remember Isaiah? Uh, chapter 5, just, just a little while ago, it was an advent. There's a whole song of the vineyard. Uh, without question, Jesus is basically saying, so if you've read the book of Isaiah, here's what happens next. And that's sort of the, 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 what he's doing with the story right away. Everyone has to know this is about the vineyard, which is Israel. Uh, the listeners to him. Uh, verse 2, he said, when the season came, he, this is the owner of the vineyard, sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And so far, this sounds like kind of the way we do business today. Uh, I think, you know, you might have a field and then you would lease it for a year to somebody who signs a contract. And then at the end of the year, you're going to get some cash for what they did, which is ideally they sold something to make that cash, right? And so you're getting some of the fruit of the field. Uh, in the ancient world, that is the definition of land ownership. Take a step back and, or write that down and ponder it later when you don't have to listen to the next thing I say. In the ancient world, land ownership was the right to the fruit of the soil. And the right to the fruit of the soil was land ownership. That's it. There's no distinction. It's not like you just have it for the house. It's about getting food and fruit out of that dirt and whether or not you have the right to do that. And in this scenario, while he has definitely leased it to the tenants, you might also look at this story through something that you can call uh, ancient squatter law. Uh, Illinois is kind of going the way of California when it comes to various uh, squatting laws. Uh, but the idea behind them is that after a certain amount of time on a piece of property or in, in a piece of property, you can make the claim that it's yours because no one else is there and you're taking care of it. And if you can prove that, you can kind of gain the right of at least uh, uh, inhabitants to a place. You can't be evicted from the place. Well, so in, in the ancient world, if you're like, you know, you're walking along as a farmer and you need some land, you can find your land, you start working on it. Some guy on a horse comes up and says, this is my land. You go, okay, I'll give you 10%. He says, okay, and on you go. It's kind of how it would work. It's not like the guy who's the knight is out there searching for serfs with an HR department, trying to make them all work for him, right? It's more whoever's there, he just comes around and compels them to give some of what he has. So that's what's happening here. He's sending someone to compel those who are on his land to give the fruit. And what they do is they do not receive him. Verse 3, they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Uh, now, here's where everything gets very not Western. Right? We'd be like, why don't you call the cops? Right? Why don't you get legal, legal recourse involved? Well, in the ancient world before cars and telephones and fax machines... Legal recourse began like this. So I think I own this land. You think you own this land. Or maybe I used to own it, but you want to own it now. And you don't think I can keep it. Or perhaps you think you're not making enough money on the land. You're not getting enough food. And I should be paying you just to take care of the land. And so when I send someone to collect information from you, uh, and he says, you know, uh, or I to get the fruit from you, 
and you want to send a message seven days journey back over mountains to me about how you think I'm not taking care of you as a landlord, you might actually just beat the guy a little bit and send him back. And the servant in the ancient world who had had, if you look carefully, had uh, his clothes and stuff, he, things are taken from him. He's kind of, he's pillaged a little bit. Um, in a sense, those marks on his body would be the proof that he didn't steal the stuff. So in one way, if you don't beat him and you send him back without the money you took from him, he's going to die. Huh? Now we're like, that's barbaric. And I'd say, well, yeah, kind of, but welcome to earth. Uh, this is the way things operated for a long, long time. And I'm not so sure we're different now just because we say we're different. We like to say we do it differently, but in, in reality, man's nature has not changed at all. So in any case, they send him back. This is the beginning of a claim by the tenants to own the land legally in the ancient world. Uh, verse four, again, he sent another servant. Think of this maybe as a second year, a second harvest. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully, same treatment. And he sent another and him they killed. There's your John the Baptist moment, maybe, right? This is in that third year. Um, so it didn't say this part yet. So in this ancient squatter law world, uh, you needed to be able to provide fruit from the land for yourself for four years. In the fourth year, if no one else came and tithed or taxed you for what you had, then you could just make the claim that it was your land. Now, it's, it's, it's been laid fallow that long. Someone left it for four years. It's yours. You worked it for four years. It's yours, right? So we're in the third year here now, and the guy keeps sending messengers back, and they're kind of like, well, what do we do? Now our claim on this land, to steal it, but to try to grab it um, in a, a hostile takeover, it requires that we escalate the situation. That's what they do. Um, they kill the man sent to them. Uh, but uh, verse 6, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. And uh, you might see this is not so much a doing of the same thing uh, with, with bad tactics. Like whenever I would read this story before I learned about this ancient law, um, about uh, squatter law, I always thought like, this is the stupidest thing ever. They killed the last three people you sent and now you're going to send your son? Like, why would you do that? Does he got an army? Huh? It doesn't make sense. It seems like you're just sending him to his death. Unless in the case of trying to serve the papers which would say, we're going to court now. There's going to be an adjudication between us over this. And you can't send a slave. You have to send somebody of the family bloodline in the household in order to make the claim. No, this is my land, right? And so that's what this son is doing. This is my land. And so when they're going to say, let us kill him and throw him out and it will be ours. And we're like, well, that would never work in the court. Oh, no, contrary. Yes, it would. It's the fourth year. Where'd the son go? Nobody knows. We haven't seen him. But we've been farming this for four, four years now. It's ours. So their plan is very viable. And all of this would have been readily understood by anybody who was listening to Jesus tell the story at the moment. That it's a viable plan to claim that the one who owns the property doesn't exist and now it belongs to us. And if you notice, the Sadducees in a moment are going to ask some questions. The Sadducees are the, are the Jews who don't believe God exists. They're the skeptical, practical, worldly atheists of the first century. That's indeed who's running the temple complex at this time. Tenants who don't believe the owner is actually real. If they did, they'd realize he was staring them eye to eye in the face in the courtyard. Uh, but they say then about this one who is the son who's come to serve notice that the time is up and that God's going to take his property back. They say, let's kill him. They took him. They threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus asked in verse nine. It says he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
Um, the, the word destroy there makes it sound like a military operation again, but maybe put that more in terms of, so let's just say, I know it's kind of a, a, a divisive name to use, but everyone knows his name. He's got lots of money. Let's imagine you got sued by Donald Trump. That didn't matter what you did. He's going to have about seven to 15 lawyers. You maybe going to have one. Chances are he's going to ruin you just by suing you. He can sue you for years. Spending money and money and money. Well, how much money you got to stay up, stay up on top of that? That's what this is saying that the owner of the vineyard is going to do. He's going to come and he's going to basically sue for the entire uh, plantation, take it back as his own, and then cast those who thought they were in, in, in charge of it um, out. And he then, to prove this story, what's it mean, uh, quotes this scripture verse. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It is marvelous. Uh, that was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We could spend a lot of time there because this verse is super deep. But let's just say he's effectively bringing all the Old Testament ideas to bear on him being the answer, the key that unlocks the way to heaven, and that they, as the builders, that they're rejecting him, but that that's what has to happen for him to be the key. Because if he doesn't get crucified, well, then the key doesn't go into the lock and turn. And so he's saying all of that right in front of them. You're going to kill me. I'm going to die. I'm going to kick you out. I know all this. You don't. He's saying all of that in front of them in this story. Meanwhile, verse 12, they're seeking to arrest him, but they fear the people for they perceive he had told the parable against them. So they left him and they went away. They, they know that Jesus knows now. And now for the sake of time, just pushing forward, the, the other two stories come up now. Two riddles, two questions trying to test Jesus. Uh, the first one about money. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and Herodians. These are the guys who've been plant, plotting to destroy him from chapter 3 onward. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And this is probably a little bit of a butter-up. It's an attempt to kind of uh, play on Jesus with flattery to get them to think, get him to think that they're they're authentic in their question. But what is somewhat interesting here is you have to know they can't be authentic in their question because the Pharisees and the Herodians are, are sort of enemies. They're sort of enemies. The Herodians really work for Caesar. They're like the local government of Julius Caesar. And while, uh, not Julius, of uh, Augustus Caesar. And while, um, while uh, Pontius Pilate also fills that role, uh, he fills it differently. You might think of Pontius Pilate being a little bit more like uh, Governor Pritzker, and then uh, Herod is something like the mayor of Rockford combined with the sheriff of, of several counties all in one, right? Um, and so uh, that's who Herod and the Herodians are. They're the, they're the Roman Empire. And the Pharisees, they're the anti-Roman Empire. Like you got all these groups of Jews, and the only ones that dislike the Roman Empire more than the Pharisees are the Zealots. And, and they're actually terrorists, like uh, trying to start wars. Um, so you have these two groups getting together. And one of the things that they actually disagree about is, should you pay taxes to Caesar or not? Because the Pharisees think that it's, it's wrong to. That the people of Israel, as God's people under David's throne, should never be under any other government ever. And therefore have no need to pay taxes. This is the promise of the Old Testament. And they think it, it should be done, that they should just go ahead and do it. 
Meanwhile, well, then here's the question. They want to trap Jesus in the midst of their debate about this. Yeah. And so they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Jesus, verse 15, knows their hypocrisy, said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, they marveled because he cut through their question and he gave them an answer that would answer it either way. Uh, what maybe is most useful tonight is just to see that the answer is you must know who you trust and you ought to trust who you ought to trust, where you ought to trust them. So if God puts someone in your life with some authority over you, say a father, a mother, right, brother, sister, sometimes uncle, aunt, boss, you know, um, it doesn't, it doesn't, you're not supposed to like trust them as if they're God. They're not, they're not perfect. They don't do everything right. Uh, submit to father and mother doesn't mean if they say jump off a bridge, do it. Huh? Uh, so the idea of, of trusting someone in authority is merely trusting that their authority is good, even if, if they're bad. And so try to follow the order and the authority that's, that you have. If you don't like taxes, that's fine. But you know, paying taxes to a government that exists is much better than not paying taxes to no government in a war-torn land. And so, you know, where do you put your hope and trust? And then ultimately, Jesus is saying, so then don't put your hope or trust in men. So Caesar's got a bunch of things with his money, his picture on it, and that's how you got to use it at the supermarket to buy your food. Fine. Uh, but why are you arguing about it as if it's a God? But that's just it. For most people, it is a God. And the reason that it wouldn't even be allowed in the temple usually is because the picture on it would have been considered an idol. Uh, all of that's here underneath this. We're going to move past it, though, and just, again, leave it at uh, Jesus can't be tricked. And he's very, very focused on putting things in the proper order via trust in the one who's really in charge, the father, his father. Here's where then the Sadducees say, yeah, but that guy doesn't exist. And they don't say it like that. They're not, they're not crass atheists. They just, and I won't, I'm not going to read this again, but we, we read it a few moments ago. Um, you know, they come up and they tell another story. And their story is pretty clearly not, not history, right? It's, it's a parable like Jesus' parable, the tenants was. Um, doesn't seem to have a direct connection to Old Testament imagery, but definitely quotes a mosaic command about how divorce works and how if someone doesn't have any offspring, and not divorce, how death and marriage and offspring work if a widow has no offspring. And of course, in Jewish law, there was a belief that offspring were very valuable. Americans have some strange lack of understanding on that. Um, but the law was then that a man was to go into his brother's wife, if the brother is dead, marry her, treat her as his own wife his whole life, treat the kids as his own kids the whole life, but the kids get the name and the inheritance of his brother. So that his brother's inheritance, his land, his fruit, can remain inside the family. So they tell this story about how a guy marries a woman and dies, and then she marries another guy and dies. They're all brothers, all seven of them. You've heard it read. And I think you can probably pick up on what a snide game this story really is. It's a gotcha moment. You can kind of see as they're going along by the fourth and fifth one, you know where it's going. And it's all, it's, it's the way it is when you're arguing with a skeptic or talking with a skeptic and they're like, well, how come, how come you don't believe this? What about that? Huh? 
And, and you end up in this place where they're more emotionally involved in winning the argument than in thinking about what they're saying. And, and this is where Jesus, he just, he just dismisses. You're, you're just so wrong. You're so wrong. You don't even know you're wrong. Uh, and to, to kind of summarize, the Sadducees were uh, not only the, the priesthood largely, but they had become secularized. Secularized. It's a word that we use now to mean worldly. Uh, secular versus church. Worldly versus church. Secularum is, is uh, Latin for world. Uh, so they were worldly, and they were worldly in this way. They had a lot of wealth, they had a lot of power, and they didn't really believe that anything they did was going to change what happened in God's sight. No angels, no resurrection, the spiritual realm. Nah, you know, I don't know. I trust what I can see. That's the Sadducees. And they're telling this story about, like, here's a little trick in the law. We found a way that judgment day won't work. And Jesus, again, says, you are so wrong, you don't deserve an answer to this. Uh, hey, you want to know about marriage on the last day? I'll tell you a new riddle that, by the way, the, the bit about neither given in marriage nor taken in marriage on the last day, that's a riddle that I don't think you're going to find an answer to in the Bible. Uh, how, how's that work out? It's like just a couple of verses, and each one's exactly the same, and they all just it, it's different. All we know is it's different, seed and flower, right? Where the seed now will be a flower then. Um, so but he just he kind of just dismisses that. Like his point is not like I can tell you about marriage in the last day. His point is, don't you know who God is? Don't you know who Abraham is? Not was, is, and who Isaac is, and who Jacob is, and who David is? Don't you know that the God who is is alive and that anyone who is inside of him, yea, though he die, yet he will he will live? And that's been the truth from the beginning of the promises that he would save us from our enemy, the devil. No, no, God's the God of the living, not the dead. You're so wrong. And then, and then he turns and he starts to talk about how he's going to die. That's where we're going immediately. Who is the son of David? He's the God who became man. And what's he going to do? He's going to die on the cross. But as we then now uh, move into our Holy Week schedule, Sunday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, there's something all those days for you. We'll be finishing Mark through that whole next week if you come to it all. Um, I, what I want you to pull out of this tonight is, is kind of two things. If you can take the parable of the tenants as the story about God sending his son to this place to rescue that fruit of the ground from the evil tenants, you're the fruit of the ground being rescued. And then what you thought and learn about that story hover behind and around all the other story we're going to get over the next week. Not only what happened in history, right, when it happened in history, but why it happened in history, which is very much so that Jesus could be your God. And when I say you, I mean plural, could be our king. When I say us, I mean Christianity huh? and can be the future. And when I say that, I just, I just mean, amen. In the name of Jesus, amen.